Unlocking the Cage is recorded live on Twitch Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific at Manager's Comedy. Tune in to chat and share your opinions and help us unlock the cage. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Whether he's removing his face or on a criminal plane or a historical chase, we love Nicholas Cage. Star of Scream and Stage, gonna watch him all day while he's a screaming with rage, cause we're unlocking the cage. Hello everybody and welcome to a uh, very spooky Halloween edition of Unlocking the Cage. Um, we are your hosts. We are Off Center Chris. Can you make it? There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Meg. This is Chris. Uh, we're the hosts of the show Unlocking the Cage. As you can see, we have dressed up for this show because it is Halloween and our movie was fun and uh, so we just thought we would pay tribute to it by smearing our faces with fake blood. Well, Chris did that. I didn't do that. Um, so the purpose of this show um, is to watch and rank every single one of Nicolas Cage's 104 movies and counting. Um, at this point in time, I have seen 15 movies. Chris has seen 28 movies, so we have a ways to go. Um we, uh, if you are listening to this as a podcast, we record this live on Sundays at 5 p.m. Pacific time on twitch.tv slash managers comedy. Um, and our theme song is by Will Gianetta, who was our guest last week. Uh, speaking of guests, we have a guest this week, and he is improviser John Serpico. Bring him out, Chris. Hello, John. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hello. Thank you so I was much. told before. Oh, thanks for having me. I was told before the show that I should dress up because it's Halloween weekend, and I feel very underdressed compared <laughs> to the both of you. To the podcast I audience, uh, I am covered in fake blood, a la the end scene of the movie Mandy, and I look whatever. Meg has some fake scars and straightened hair, and John Serpico is wearing a chef's hat. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a great combination. I, I, I think it's perfect. <laughs> I did what I could with what I had in the house. I have no notes. <laughs> I think it's perfect. <laughs> um, it, it fits. So it fits. If it's, I'm not going to say <laughs> why. Mean, I'll tell you later why, but it fits. <laughs> I mean, that famous uh, scene where he murders a, a chef in a stereotypical <laughs> chef's outfit. Deleted scene. Movie. Deleted mm -hmm. scene. Um, <laughs> So we uh, we always ask this of our guests, uh, John, how many Nicolas Cage movies have you seen? So uh, if we're getting technical, I've seen 31 Nicolas Cage movies and one Nicolas Coppola movie, because in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, uh, that was before he used Nick Cage as a stage name. So 32 total uh, with a 31 and one breakdown. That's awesome. That's actually a very high number. I think that might be our second most uh cage experience guests we've had on so far i think brendan buzard had something in the 40s but he was a film's major so unfair advantage um <laughs> so we it was good it's always good to have someone who has seen a lot of Nicolas cage movies so we can that what happens is when someone else who's seen more films comes on they take one of our slots that's how we got this job so yes you have to do the podcast. I will. Now. I will free up my Sunday nights. I did not know that was part of this, but I am prepared for this response. You are the host now of the show. Okay. You know, the I only way to pass it on I, is to find someone who's seen more Nicolas Cage movies than you. Like it follows. Yeah, I need to like get more chef's hats. 
Um, all right. So this movie, this movie that we're talking about today is Mandy. Um, this is the most recent Nicolas Cage movie that we have discussed on this podcast. This is from 2018. So very recently. Um, it was a movie by Greek Canadian director Panos Cosmatos. This was his. Do you guys know how many movies he did before this? I do because you told me a few minutes oh, ago. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I I should have looked that up. My guess is that this is like his third or something. It's, that's pretty close. He, this is only his second movie. Um, oh, wow. Okay. And his that's first amazing. movie was back in 2010 uh, and was like similarly horror fantasy uh, movie. So he definitely has a style and it is very fun. Um, and this movie uh, was relatively low budget, like $6 million. It didn't do that well box office wise. I think it was like 1.4 million, uh, but I know I'm surprised wow. too. I think it deserved more, yeah. uh, but it was super well reviewed and was uh, of Nicolas Cage's recent movies, one of the best reviewed ones because he's had a lot of like video on demand stuff that has been pretty trashy. So this is a- uh... I think this is a prime candidate for, for cult status absolutely um i you know it's considering how well it was reviewed uh and how hard it was for me to see it in the theater because i actually did see this movie in the theater um you know the fact that they are so disproportionately like counter correlated means that at some point like the secret's gonna break and everyone's gonna realize how ridiculous and good this movie was and it's crazy to me that a film that only cost six million dollars that has nick cage in it did not make at least that money back. Like 1.4 is so low. Like, I can't believe that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't think there was um, much of a wide release. I So uh, for, for me to see it, I saw it uh, actually, it was, I think it was released in the fall of 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like sometime around Halloween. Um, but, uh, me and my, my friend Will, uh, had to go up to Salem, Massachusetts to see it at like a little kind of little art housey theater that was in like a mall that looked sort of abandoned. (laughs) And we were one of, we were two of 10 people in there and all 10 people, like we all looked around and we were like, yeah, everyone in here is our people. This is perfect. <laughs> but we may have been the only 10 people in the state of Massachusetts to see the darn movie. So I have right. a I have a fact from the chat uh, from from our friend Brendan. Uh, his dad directed Tombstone. So Panos Cosmatos's dad. Directed... I'm gonna guess Dino Cosmatos. Is that the George that George Cosmatos? His friends call him Dino. Dino. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> He also directed, uh, his dad also directed Rambo First Blood Part 2. Whoa. All right. The story uh, so, so it's in the family. Yep. <laughs> so a son of a famous director directs the son of a famous director. What? What, what a small world, this Hollywood world of ours. <laughs> Oh my God. Um, I was so I was yeah I was curious I wanted I did want to touch on our backgrounds of the movie so so John you said that you had seen it at great at great difficulty <laughs> in, in Salem um, I yeah know, yeah and it it made it better frankly I you know a movie like this it it almost felt like this was an old VH VHS tape that someone found and you watched it in a friend's basement. And it was like two in the morning. You were all like chugging Lipton Brisk iced tea out of cans. 
like it was this very like it i feel like it, it took me back to to my childhood um like watching puppet master or hellraiser uh just because it was you know and i don't want to jump ahead but there's like laughable weird gore mm. uh like the same kind of stuff that teenagers that grow up in new jersey <laughs> would watch um so yeah it was me uh, uh one of my best friends in the world and eight strangers all wearing like Danzig and Misfits t-shirts <laughs> in Salem in the fall. Uh, it, it, it was like we were all let in on a secret that the rest of the world didn't know yet. Oh, my God. That sounds really fun. I, I just loved how they employed every filter at their disposal in Adobe Premiere. Mm. Every last damn filter you could possibly apply to a piece of, you know, movie was in this movie. And, just and their, uh, their lighting people were really given a lot to do, for sure. Oh There's a God. lot of very creative lighting. <laughs> it, it's, it's, one of those, it's one of those films where you just, you, you like, it, it looked like it was guerrilla filmmaking. Like, mm -hmm. it looked like nothing had permits. They were shooting in the woods. They were shooting in a ravine. They were shooting in what was clearly some dude's kitchen. Like, yeah. they were doing these things. And it got me thinking, like, I should have worked on this movie. You know, like I should have found a way because I'm not willing to bet everyone on that movie is like union talent. You know, I could have wandered in and held a boom mic or held a weird filter over a light, you know? So this, uh, the something that I learned about this movie today is that it was filmed in Belgium, which was surprising to me. Um, it is a co like co-production between the US and Belgium. But there uh, were so, so many, like, so many disturbingly blonde people, like, way too blonde and, like, way too many of them that I was like, oh, yeah, this is not America. Like, this is... Yeah. <laughs> but it... Like, the, the start of the movie, like, there was just, like, a, a little scene with, you know, like, Nicolas Cage's character is a logger. Yeah. And so he was, like, logging in the woods. And every other logger was, like, a gorgeous blonde man. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, like, filling out their, their shirts and, like, walking and carrying bandsaws and, yeah. It was like Nick Cage and the entire Skarsgård family vlogging. <laughs> yeah, just hanging out. It's like, I, I'm willing to bet they were all like, you know, in some like mountain chateau, like enjoying some peyote together. And they said, you know what we should do? We should get the son of the guy that directed that Rambo sequel to do a psychedelic revenge fantasy thriller. <laughs> and then it just oh happened. Oh my God. Yeah, that movie. Uh, oh my God. There was an interview with the director where he talked about like um, what his concept of the movie was when he was working on it. And he was just like, well, I just wanted to go into the woods with Nick Cage and a smoke machine and shoot a movie. <laughs> he's, he's, he is listing our broken dreams. Um, um, my, my friend Will gave me, uh, when I told him I was, I was uh, coming on Unlocking the Cage, he said uh, one fun fact that he learned was that... Um, Nick Cage was originally offered the part of uh, Jeremiah Sand, the cult leader, who was played mm -hmm. by Linus Roach, who was actually in Law and Order, uh, one of the Law and Orders. Um, so, you know, essentially Nick Cage got the script and they said, hey, we want you to be the cult leader. And he looked at it and he said, no, 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 I'm going to be the lead on this. <laughs> and um, the casting director probably said, oh, yeah, all right. Yeah, another <laughs> example of Nick Cage being offered a villain role and turning it down. This is a this is a theme that we have found through watching movies is that Nick Cage is never the villain, except uh, famously Face Off, where he is the villain for a little while and then becomes the hero. Um, 
but we it's like (laughs) it reminds me of um you know apparently like jason statham and dwayne johnson had like riders in their contract when they're filming the the fast and furious movies that they're never allowed to lose a fight and they can only take a certain number of punches on camera i feel like nick cage has the same kind of things where it's like okay i can be the villain but only for 14 minutes, and only if I have even more time playing the good guy wearing the villain's face. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much it. I mean, I, I can't find I can't find a single example of him being the bad guy ever. So I just yeah. love I mean, the, those riders, we'll like when they have those in a in a contract. What it seems to always lead to is just like the lead has no character arc because they never have to face enough adversity. To like actually, you know, because they never get in a fight and lose, so they're just like the same the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, it's you know they can they can be super strange and not change at all, which sounds like a fun Nick Cage project where he's like, yeah. so I'm just gonna be this level of weird for 95 minutes. Mm-hmm. I think there was a movie um, that came out. This is one of the ones I didn't see. It came out the year before Mandy, called Mom and Dad. Mm. And I, I think technically he's a villain in it. Um, I have you reviewed Mom and Dad? No, we haven't yet. Did but... Pat Gremion or was that Brendan mentioned that during the podcast that time? Somebody, somebody has seen it. The we, we uh, it's on it's on list. our list. Yeah, it's supposed to. So this one. is one of the ones. I, I won't spoil it or anything, but this is one of the movies where I'll I'll just read kind of what's on IMDb. Uh, A teenage girl and her younger brother must survive a wild 24 hours during which a mass hysteria of unknown origin causes parents to turn violently on their own kids. Oh my God. Uh, The parents are Nicolas Cage and Selma Blair. Huh? Selma Blair's in that movie. Oh, wow. Selma Blair. Yeah, this is a 2017 movie. Selma Blair. And so the two of them are a married couple that uh, something happens, something snaps and the world falls into parent-child chaos. Well, Brendan it's, thinks that movie's uh, fun. Yeah, it's, it's, it says it's a, a wickedly dark, bloody comedy and an over-the-top performance from Nicolas Cage. It actually got relatively good reviews. But well, hold uh, up, hold up, hold up. Yeah, yes. We are getting too far afield. We need to talk yes. about Mandy. Mandy is the <laughs> name of this show. Thank so you, So we Chris. open on a quote. At the from the blackness, yes. it's something. Wait, like, before we do that, I want to do what? Well, yes, one one quick thing, which is just we we let so forever. Anyone listening, what is the overarching uh, premise of this movie? It is a revenge movie uh, where Nicolas Cage lives in the woods and just gets uh, something horrible happens to his wife, and then he takes revenge. So that's the overarching plot. We open, Chris. Well, take a. I will even sim- boil that down to even simpler to say yes. uh, that is a um, oh god my brain Keanu Reeves movie that just came out John Wick three yeah this yeah. is a Nordic Nick Cage John Wick yeah with yeah yeah John Wick with fantasy overtones and ten percent the budget yeah John John Wick if he's a lumberjack yeah yeah. Yeah. But what's what's interesting about this movie? It's a pure revenge movie. He's not fighting to save anybody. He is just fighting to kill, which is John Wick yeah. is like another one like that, which is pure revenge. Yeah, and that that I mean, there's such a um, you know that that movies of that type have really been proliferating over the last ten years. There's something very 
tidy about it, you mm. know, cathartic maybe. People just watching essentially an unkillable revenge machine do what they do. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, this very much is in that that genre of like, you know, spirit of revenge carving path to glory. But this is... Of all the revenge flicks of the last 10 years, this is probably the one that has the most ridiculously fantasy overtones. Yeah. So it's interesting you say Spirit of Revenge because he was in a movie called The Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance. Just saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so we start the, the thing. There's a quote and uh, stuff. And we're in the woods and there's a happy so little like, couple. When I die, put speakers on my head and rock and roll me. Oh, if. Yeah. If if I may, because I need to rehearse this when I tell the tattoo artist to put it on my back. <laughs> um, when I die, bury me deep. Lay two speakers at my feet. Put some headphones on my head and rock and roll me when I'm dead. And Chris, you look this up, and it's some. It's a. It's uh. A death I, I close the window. Last... Yeah, it's a death row inmate's last words. There's a specific person. I wonder uh, who died. At that moment, my friend Will and I kind of looked at each other and nodded, and we're like, "All right, this is how this movie's going to be, huh?" <laughs> we set that tone. The whole beginning, so, and yeah, sorry, continue. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, the whole beginning is like basically we have like a pretty long sequence that's just sort of setting up what their life is. They're happy. They live in a cabin in the woods that has way too many windows for my comfort level, but maybe that's one of your things. I don't know. Um, and they just, you know, it's this couple that clearly has had a troubled past. Like, I think we have hints that uh, Nick Cage was an alcoholic. I think Mandy, it talks about like maybe some abuse in her past. She has this, this scar, you know, we, uh, they've, they, but they've found each other and they're happy. They're living in the eighties. They're doing art. They're cutting down trees, you know? And, and Mandy, I think to, to play into what John was saying, is really presented like the fantasy overtones like they really kind of give her like some magical qualities as a person like almost like she's like a forest fairy nymph kind of person i don't know if anyone else will ever picked up on that like she's like strolling through the woods and i don't know it just kind of made her theme seem not quite human i think yeah between between that and kind of the art she makes um you know she like there is an otherworldly quality to Mandy's character, which I, I feel like if you get into like the gender theory of movies, it's like, is that Red's male gaze of her? Like, you know what I mean? But, um, you know, but but the fact of the matter is like, you know, she's a, she's a talented artist that, you know, loves kind of the fantasy genre. She reads fantasy. She paints fan paints and sketches fantasy. So, um, you know, I uh, like what, what I, I I think about it as you know. I mean, you know, from Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, like the fantasy genre has proliferated through pop culture. But in my mind, if it's the '80s and you like fantasy, you're kind of an outcast. Mm-hmm. So, like in my mind, Mandy's an outcast, and then Red is also an outcast for different reasons. And then these two outcasts kind of find each other. I did so not that's realize how his I name read was it. Red. The whole time, I did not realize his name Oh, yeah, was his Red. name is Red Miller. Oh, yep. man. That's probably the most normal Nick Cage name in any of the movies we've done so far. 
It's like <laughs> he has a lot of crazy character names. Yeah, I know like eight people named Caster Troy though. <laughs> like my high school was like half Caster Troys. What, what's um, funny about this movie is like we could kind of fast forward right to the halfway point, like an hour in at this point. It's, it's, it's like I was writing the beats for the movie down because I usually write it down just to make sure we don't miss anything, and it's much simpler than uh, a lot of the other ones. Yeah. Um. I I'm curious. So so like this is this is this is a pretty long section and of them just being happy and. One of the things that we found in a lot of our other movies is that Nick Cage's romantic uh, subplots are not always very compelling. Um, I think we had one, I mean, we've, we have only seen, uh, this is episode six at this point, um, but we had, you know, Wild at Heart, I thought was pretty good. I mean, in terms could, of a. You could technically count parts of Face Off. I, I mean, if you want, if you want romantic Nick Cage, you got to go all the way back to Moonstruck, right? Frankly. Which we haven't yet, and I'm looking forward to that. But oh, I, I, it's I will so say, fun. I know everyone, everyone is very excited for that one. I'm excited for that one. I, I will say that I think this, so like in comparison to like National Treasure, right, where he has this like tacked on romantic subplot, which is just awful. But this, I thought was like pretty compelling. Like I believe them as a couple. I like, you know, like appreciated their relationship. I don't know if you guys felt the same way. Oh, no, I liked it. I thought he did great. I thought I, di I didn't think it was gross. Usually in Nick Cage, I'm like, ah, oh, he's like way too old for this lady or like whatever. It just kind of felt like he was just some kind of logger and he met this like great woman. And he thought, you know, he you could see like like when whatever his decisions were when he played this, like he kind of looked at her in awe all the time. Like when she she's drawing, he's just like, like, I can't believe what you're drawing. Like, you know what I mean? Like he just kind of was always like in a little bit of awe of her. And I thought like that felt like a real on purpose decision. And it felt like, I don't know. It felt like it was playing something. It wasn't just so tacked on as stupid. Like, yeah, I, I, the, the, the scene that really did it for me in terms of like cementing this as a, a, a compelling romantic Nick Cage relationship was the really like super tight two shot of the two of them in bed talking about planets that was cute. Yeah. It was super cute. And, and the, 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 the little eddies of the conversation was interesting because you know, um, like Mandy was talking about Jupiter and why she likes Jupiter. And I think it was a lot of insight into her character. Um, you know, there's a storm that's raging on the surface of Jupiter and all that. And she gives this big, long answer. That's like really cool and fun. And then she asks Red and he pauses for like a quarter of a beat and then says, Saturn, I think. And then Mandy's like, oh yeah, cool, cool. Like, you know, in all of their exchanges, um, she says more and talks in more kind of an uh, like open, whereas Red's answers are very kind of short and closed. So the vibe I get is he's trying to be the best version of himself for this woman that he found. Mm -hmm. um, like he he found this person, the soulmate that, you know, he presumably, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm laying a lot of backstory in, but you know, because of the past that it is suggested that they both had, you know, it's, you know, Red saw, you know, Mandy as redemption. Like, right. Mandy is the reason why I must be as good as I can be. And she is so much more interesting than he is. So he's trying to be interesting, but he's not interesting. You know what I mean? Like, Red Miller, before he goes into revenge mode, is you know a logger with a dark past that is not the best conversationalist in these woods. 
So I, I love that, that dynamic between the two of them. In the first hour of the movie, that's really the only thing of consequence. Right. Is watching this, yeah. He, there's, there's, so there's two, well, there's one thing. So he, he does say something about he, like, likes the planet. Chris would remember this better than I, the, he, the planet that eats other planets. Oh, um. You're uh, on mute, Chris. Oh, sorry. Ah, I'm muted. He What's says, I, I like Galactus. And then. That's Galactus, the planet yeah. eater. Yeah. No, it's crazy. He goes, I like Galactus. And she's like, that's not a planet. It's like, well, he eats planets. And then they pan up. And they show a swirling gas in the sky, which was how Galactus was represented in the Fantastic Four movie uh, with Silver Surfer, the second one. So I think this is all MCU, baby. Yeah, I, I, they're tied in at this point. This is Sony MCU, um, though. This isn't the good MCU. This is the yeah, G. yeah. This is the this is the the, the bootleg MCU. This is the bootleg um, MCU. So it's, this is actually this, a Marvel movie. And this ties into too. We we know uh, from other stuff that or we have we, do, we haven't dug into it too much in this podcast, but we do know that Nicolas Cage is a huge comic fan. Like he oh, loves yeah. comic books, so that makes tracks. And I did think so. There's 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 two conversations that they have that I think were important. There's, there's that planet one, and I was thinking like maybe the sort of eating other planets thing. Like I don't know. This is a little bit more of a stretch than my second one, but the, but like is Nick Cage the Galactus who goes in revenge and he eats all the people that have wronged him and <laughs> secondly I, yeah sorry go ahead <laughs> no, no, you, you go secondly i want to hear the second so, so the other one that this when she when she tells this oh, mandy tells a story about her dad bringing a pillowcase full of starlings uh, i so this is my second time watching this movie um and on rewatch i was like oh pillowcase okay and that was i feel like that was kind of foreshadowing to mandy being brought out later on in the movie in a bag you know I don't know. Maybe that oh, was a stretch. That's actually no. That actually makes a lot of sense. So I, I, I I'm of two, I'm of two minds. I think the you know the I, I think the concept behind low budget film like whenever I like watch something made with like a shoestring budget like this is I'm looking for the fact that every scene is going to do multiple things. Right. Like every line of dialogue is either you know putting putting color into the character or hinting at what's going to happen or setting something up that's going to pay off later like so i think i i want to believe that that you're right on that like i i want because it will it would make the movie an already great movie like two to five percent better like if that you know that that whole like really visceral story about killing starlings as far as the the galactus line i i hope so (laughs) <laughs> well, well, the, I think the only reason why it is is because I'm not entirely sure that Nick Cage didn't uh, ad lib that line. <laughs> I bet he did. That kind of sounds like him. You know, to 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 your point, uh, John, there there's so much in a, in this movie. Like the reason we can kind of go back and like assume, like I know you're saying, oh, I'm putting a lot of backstory on this, right? Like you can assume so much because their performances are so loaded as if that had all happened in this movie. And like, they're definitely performing as if that's all in their minds. And like you said, like the way he treats her is indicative of so much other stuff that it's really rich. Like you can, and and maybe that's like you said, like these, these scenes have to do so much more than just, uh, just, you know, move the story along. They have to like say a lot more, you know, about their history. Yeah. Let's, um, let's go to the next section. Uh, because I think we, uh, yeah so so we so meanwhile while they're 
you know, living their happy lives in the Shadow Mountains, which, by the way, is a place in the Mojave Desert uh, that, as far as I can tell, looks nothing like this. <laughs> um, I don't know if maybe they're referring to a different Shadow Mountains. It's probably the 80s was of... a different time. Yeah. Uh, so then we have, meanwhile, simultaneously, we meet the children of the New Dawn, which is the cult run by Jeremiah Sand, um, who we see a little bit of what they're what they're life is you know jeremiah sand is unhappy and then they see mandy walking and become obsessed and he jeremiah sand becomes obsessed with her and uh that's you know any thoughts on the cult before we move on to their encounter so i i think the with the with the cult like the introduction of the cult they get their own like title card you know and so that you know big creepy red letters uh, so that does a lot of heavy lifting, but I, th- you know, what it is, is they're dri- they drive by and they see Mandy walking along like the dirt road through the woods. And then we just get this close up shot of each of these faces. And, you know, they, they, you know, presumably, I mean, these are all actors that have some sort of credits, but, um, you know, they're, they're obviously very, uh, they all look interesting and distinct and not like, you know, they don't look traditional Hollywood. They look like the, it was cast well for people that would believably be in a cult. You know, like it was, this wasn't like airbrushed Hollywood beauty cult members. This was just people with really interesting faces, faces that told stories in this like, you know, $4,000 white van driving through the woods and we just get a shot of each of their faces and I think the last shot is on Jeremiah Sands and you know he's got like the blonde hair and looks like a cult leader and um I I think that casting really really popped by the way the 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 actor they had play him was really I think he did a great job so you know that like that that introductory scene in the van, I think, just did so so much. It would have been less impactful if there was dialogue. I think, mm-hmm. like yeah. the first dialogue, I think, is in their house later on. And he's we uh, right? yeah, so we remember that because one of the things that we rank the movie on at the end is the casting. Uh, so I think it was. I I know you'll have a relatively high rank. So yeah, that's a great scene. Um, and then we get to this. Uh, this part where um, we have uh, the, I don't know what you do, the ocarina of. <laughs> no, it's I have, <laughs> it's the the, <laughs> the, the, the horn. Of, I know what the name is. It's the horn of Abraxas. Yep. Mm, like, I'm do you be have Googling the horn Abrax- of Abraxas? And then like every there's time a, there's sh- a lot of people that played a lot of D and D in in Northern European countries putting <laughs> this movie together. Um, but yeah, it would and. It, surprisingly it just really plays like that whole we're gonna play a musical instrument and summon demons somehow that part of the story works oh yeah (laughs) i i i have no idea why uh people smarter than me have made this movie and i cannot tell you why it works but the fact is that this magical ocarina ocarina made of like lava rock summons a demonic biker gang and I'm just like, yep, I'm in. I'm fully invested. This totally makes sense. I just like how it doesn't, it it crosses the line like it does. 
but only to the point like to, to going full on fantasy, right? It crosses that line, but only to the point where you're still going to be like, well, this is just, this could be through the lens of somebody who's like a little crazy or high on drugs. So it's like, it kind of just really does a great job of just really skirting that, just going full blown. Oh, these are demons, you know, but they never really are demons. They're just kind of. They do, know. and they do have an explanation for it. So they say that they were given a bad batch of LSD and revenge for something, and that just broke their brains such that they're <laughs> obsessed with violence now. <laughs> and so it, they become you know, these, these, at these avatars of, 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 of manic rage. So, you know, the, you know, it's like this, this cult that is, you know, dressed in whites and grays, you know, blow this ocarina to some, to summon the literal manifestation of their basest and darkest instincts as manifested in the form of an LSD crazed biker gang. I think in that, like that whole situation, I think works because of how low the budget was for this. Like I could see a costume designer looking at like 300 square feet of leather and a bunch of rivets and saying, okay, I think I can make a hell gang out of this. What's funny is when we get to Ghost Rider, it's like the high budget version of this and it makes it shitty because it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. basically, you know, they've got a hell gang and they're all pretty boys. They're all like uh, models and they all represent the different elements. It's really fucking stupid. And these guys are basically just the Yurikai on ATVs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's Yurikai on bikes, and it's perfect. Um, <laughs> it, it played. Like, I was, I remained invested. That's the, the amazing thing uh, about this movie is at no point did I say, like, all right, under my breath and fidget in my seat and think about what I was going to do when the movie was over. I remain like they had their hooks in me the whole time, which is amazing considering how this damn movie ramps up. Yeah, it's got we we because now we're at the weirdest sequence, which is when they capture. So they capture Mandy and Red. They leave Red chained up outside for a long time, and meanwhile Mandy gets like wasp venom. Yeah, like that jar, giant wasp venom. Whatever that jar is that the dude, the bad guy chugs, the slime jar, it's like pure, like, like pure homemade holistic hallucinogens, or based but on the wasp. But she also gets venom. stung in the neck by a giant wasp. I'm wondering right if here. it comes from the wasp somehow, or oh, who knows? Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. It was some combination of eye drops of LSD right. and wasp essence, um, <laughs> but both were definitely introduced into her circulatory system like giant wasp too not like a little one like like the size of a like a small like a mouse it's like a bald fist yeah <laughs> like it's uh you know really really nightmare nightmare inducing oh wasp sizes i would say that was i mean this is a very fairly violent movie but i would say that was the worst part of it for me was watching that yeah. nasty bug sting her I did that not like rough. that. It was, yeah, it was gross. Um, I mean, hats off to the practical effects, folks. Like, the whole second half of the movie is loaded with practical effects. And, and But this was almost like the first, like, super interesting practical effects thing they did. Was like, and here's this, like, giant creepy wasp. And it's going to sting you. And you're going to, you know. Um, it, it sets the the stage for, uh, I think, the, the scene that the guy, uh, Linus Roach is his name, I think, or Roche. Um, like this is the scene where he just demonstrates that he is just an, just, just as, as absolutely despicable as he needs to be to trigger 
a revenge second right. half. Because um, essentially he, like, like Mandy is now heavily drugged and she's sitting with this cult in like the den of their house and this, you know, messianic cult leader is like, hold on, I want you all to listen to my experimental jazz <laughs> funk album. Oh man, oh, that was so <laughs> And like, this is how he is going to like seduce her both both physically and like into the, ingratiate her into the cult. It's like, I want you to listen to this like, this EP that I put together. That was such <laughs> um, a great reveal that he's just like a failed musician from the seventies or late seventies. And yeah. it's just so, and that's the part with the really disturbing uh, deep fake where his face is overlaid with Mandy's face. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, she's hallucinating and oh, it's, ooh, yeah. So creepy. Like that was to me mm-hmm. was probably the creepiest part of the whole movie. And then he pulls his dick out. Yep. Yeah. No, no, by the way, that uh, Charles Manson, also a failed musician. Oh. There's there's something, like, that archetype is is so great for, you know, for villains. Um, and they're going to be men. They're always going to be men uh, because they make such good villains. Um, is, like, just that trope of, like, the failed musician, um... Like, you know, one's artistic dream is bad and thus he is emasculated. And then he must build up this new and more evil masculinity by, you know, totally. joining a, a, starting a cult. Like it, it simultaneously makes him more threatening, more hateable and more weak. And that that is the holy trinity of creating like a hateful, toxic male villain and i loved how it was done and isn't this kind of like a like the oh, i'm blanking on his name which is weird the scientology guy like wasn't so he started his career as a novelist right Ms. and then oh, uh, l ron hubbard l. oh ron thank hubbard, you yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was gonna say miscavige but that's not you meant yeah um and then and then so she uh she laughs you know, at him laughs at him and mm-hmm. that was a great cr- moment yeah but Just over the top cackling at him he's super embarrassed he's and like, don't fucking look kinda... at me to all his crew <laughs> that was yeah cool. and it, i mean it reflects the true horror of it is her laughing at him naked and vulnerable is what immediately leads to her death right yeah. the most horrible possible death you could think of and, and that that is the, that is obviously an element of of pure real visceral horror it's it's that it's a very it's very upsetting scene when she dies for sure and yeah that's i feel like that's the turn and so so when i was talking to this talking to this movie talking to chris about this movie i remember saying like all right it's going to be half like very disturbing and like weird drug trip stuff and then like half of it just is going to be a crazy fun revenge you know like it's it's that's the part where as soon as we got to the point where she died i was like okay because Chris was worried about like being super disturbed by this movie. I was like, all right, if you made it this far, you're going to be fine for the rest of the movie. Well, and the title card comes up at that hour mark right. after she dies. And it's like, oh, this is where the movie starts. It's like the beginning was like that prologue. And yeah, this is this is everyone's really long, horrifying homework assignment. Yeah. And like, now, yeah. welcome to class. But it was an enjoyable first half in the movie. I didn't I did not hate it. 
I did also like the the Ash version of the the of Mandy that blows away with the eyelashes. It looks so like much like her face. I, I don't know how they did that. That was pretty cool. Yeah. And which which leads immediately to the part that gave Mandy like the movie Mandy a little bit of like a viral bump before it came out, oh, which yeah. is the 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 Nick Cage in the bathroom scene. Well, there's a scene before that scene that I think oh, we should right, all talk right, right. about really quickly. I before managed, the bathroom scene? I managed to, to get a clip of a and I honestly have not prepared this clip, but I, I remembered it last minute and I'm like, oh, we gotta look at this because you know, it is messed up. Oh, where is it? Uh, I it, it it's what is it when he walks into the house? He walks in the house and there's something playing on the TV. Yes. And uh, it is. Thank uh, you for bringing that up. That was bizarre this, this is... and makes no fucking sense, but it's like the funniest thing I've seen. Uh, so it's a cheddar. The, the, it's a commercial for. Let me just pause it and get the uh, the audio to work. Oh yeah, the cheddar yeah, yeah, yeah. goblin. It was like, what am I looking at right now? Like, I would never want to eat this this shit. All right, here we go. It's it's uh it's cheddar goblin. Hopefully this works. Macaroni and cheese. Oh, look, cheddar goblin. Cheddar goblin, did you bring all the macaroni and cheese? Nothing's better than cheddar. Cheddar goblin. <laughs> Laugh track to this clip, Chris. This is from Comic Con. It's a Goblin Good. They played it at Comic Con. That was uh like a uh, that's the only version I could find was one that was played in front of a live audience at Comic Con. So this is something great. we so we see uh, uh red uh just sort of in his underwear covered in blood, just realized his wife has you know been murdered and uh is just watching this commercial. It's a great scene. And he just goes, Chatter Goblin. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> It, I think it works for, for two reasons, um, at least through my eyes anyway. One is, you know, we, we see the most, it, the, the most disturbing thing in the movie just happens. Right. And so, you know, there's this really, you know, super strange, precise moment of levity that I, I think for sake of the, like the audience sitting in the theater watching it was probably good for them in some way. Like it's almost represents this palate cleansery moment, but also I think kind of diegetically, it's a reminder that Mandy is gone. Red Miller is now alone in the woods, a broken and exhausted man. And the only thing in his voice, the only thing in his life are the voices he will hear from like the two or three channels he gets on his little television. Mm. So it, 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 it heightens his loneliness, his, 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 you know, this new road of desperation he's going to be on uh, as manifested in this really banal children's Mac and cheese commercial. It also made me not want Mac and cheese for a while, which I thank this movie for because I'm trying to diet. It's, yeah, it's uh, a weird feeling to not want mac and cheese. It's yeah, a relatively it's like, oh, foreign concept. Goblin puke, ooh. 
Uh, yeah. So uh, the guy who, so the, the, the cheddar got, this was a piece of trivia I found that I was going to sh- save for Chris for this. The cheddar goblin commercial was directed by the guy who directed too many cooks. Oh, that makes wow. a lot of sense. Holy crap. Yeah. That makes a whole lot of sense now. So, so yeah, we're, we're, we're going to the bathroom scene. Do we, should we watch it first or should we, uh, should we, uh, talk about Let's it? Let's watch it. All right. Yeah. We have the bathroom I think this scene. is a, Chris got the scene in its entirety because it's, uh, I mean, I feel like this is the the key scene in this movie, if any. One of the things about this bathroom scene I noticed is that, and maybe we can talk about it after, is uh, it's like the clearest, most unfiltered footage in the whole movie. It's just a scene in the bathroom. That is a crazy ass scene. And this is why you get Nick Cage to be the lead. Yeah. Oh my God. I don't know. For the the people listening on the podcast, that was probably very boring, but it's just him him in his uh, underwear, chugging vodka, screaming a lot, covered in blood. Yeah. That's the moment where you realize it's like, oh, he's not going to cope with this in a healthy way. (laughs) Like, this is the moment where you just know that, you know, so something in him has now broken. This like tenuous piece he's made with himself has now been 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 torn asunder. Um, you, you know, like add, Mandy, yeah. the love of his life, his anchor to reality is now gone. And so he will just descend into his most base instincts. Yeah, and this is like where a lot of the things you can assume about his past come in. Because you're like, oh yeah, something, you know. Yeah. She was holding back the dam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so, so he starts plotting revenge. He ha- makes a couple stops before he uh, starts taking on, you know, the the people that killed his wife. He, he uh, goes to visit somebody, this guy in a trailer. It seems like they were both in the army, the war together. Oh, so this, all right. I have a complicated backstory. I invented in my own mind about this whole movie, and it's based off of this scene and the previous scene. Basically, yeah. I think he was in the Vietnam War with this guy. He came back from the war, addicted to maybe drugs and alcohol uh and i think he became a mercenary or some kind of criminal upon returning to the war from the war with this other guy he was an alcoholic he meets mandy one night he swears it all off he gives this gun to his old war buddy to hold on to crossbow 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 stops drinking entirely because you remember he was on the helicopter and they're offering him a beer when he's coming back from uh, from uh, logging. And he's like, no, 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 none for me. And you don't see him drink until he finds the hidden bottle of, of mm-hmm. alcohol. So I think that's that's my guess as to his whole backstory based on that scene. And, and I think there's enough there that that's probably about right. Like the that scene with Carruthers, because uh, that, that's the guy in the trailer. Yeah. 
played uh, very, very nicely by Bill, like famed character actor Bill Duke. Um, you know, it, they they talk about his shared past and their shared past without mentioning it directly. You know, it, he says, uh, I think the crossbow's called like the Reaper. Yeah. And, you know, he, he literally lifts up like the, the bed in the trailer and pulls out the Reaper and Carruthers says, yep, uh, you know, he said something like in, in perfect condition, just like when you gave it to me or when you left it with me, I think. Yeah. Like every sentence in that scene serves purpose of allowing us to infer that kind of backstory, as, as Chris mentioned, or moving the plot forward very dramatically. Like, you know, Carruthers gives uh, Red all the information he needs about the biker gang. This is, Meg, what you said before about like, oh yeah, these are the bikers that got hit with the LSD. Carruthers is the one that introduces right. that. Um, and, you know, like, he, he's also a Fletcher and he made crossbow bolts. <laughs> it's just this really... You know, it's a five-minute scene that does just an absolute boatload of work, and it also has another Nicolas Cage get big emotional moment where he's screaming like they burned her alive. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, I mean that that scene did a, a hell of a lot of work, and every scene after that is absolutely bonkers. Because the uh, scene after that is him forging the axe. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is something we were able to get a clip of. Oh, uh, oh thank goodness. Can I just tell you, when this happened, I said, he's forging something? I got so excited. I'm like, this movie just took the greatest turn of all time. Like, I just uh -huh. lost my shit when he started forging an axe. I did not expect that at all. He is, of course, uh, for, for those listening, he is wearing sunglasses <laughs> and uh, pouring liquid metal into an axe-shaped mold. Hammering it now, that's... Slow motion and at like 15 frames a second. Just a chromed out axe on one side. It's just like the, the what's it called? The, uh, the M side from Buffy, except all metal. Basically. It's the uh, it, you know the origin of the 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 axe shape. No, it's a uh, uh, from a metal band called Celtic Frost. That is their logo. So my speculation on that axe, when Will and I, uh, my friend Will and I, saw this movie live, uh, not live, when we saw it surrounded by other people back when you could go to the movies, was um, I speculated that like whoever it was owned the 500 acres of land that they filmed this movie on, he would only agree to let them film there if they put his ax in the movie. <laughs> and like, that's why that freaking ax is in the movie. I mean, Cause that... I'm like dude named Sven made an ax and owns a bunch of forest in Belgium. And he's like, you're going to put the ax in the movie and then you get the forest. Well, um, like I gotta say, I, this is not to take, I, that's not how you you can't you can't forge and then hammer something. Yeah, you know I, what I, mean? I sorry you can forge then hammer something, but you can't like like mold. You can't. First off, that was aluminum. That wasn't that what he was pouring into that mold was aluminum. It was or or like you know solder. It wasn't like uh, steel. But you can't. Yeah, it's, it's how that. you make cooking. It's how you make like, <laughs> cutlery yeah. and stuff. Like you it's that's like. That's not going. That'll that'll shatter like Pyrex if you right. hit it against. It's something. gonna be all hollow inside, all uh, all mm -hmm. voids and shit. 
but it's still this is i just want to point out this is the first criticism of the movie that any one of the three of us has had (laughs) everything else has been positive so far i cannot criticize this movie for its lack of realism all right (laughs) i i i feel like 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 chris and i are both heavily invested enough in the 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 art of, of of blacksmithing that we'd be remiss if we didn't at least point this out. It's absolutely <laughs> fair. I think it's more of a comment on how well received we, uh, how well received this movie was for us. Also, uh, Chris, he did not I sent have... you the uh, the logo in uh, Messenger. I don't know if you're able to pull it up on oh, the screen for us. Let me see if I can, I can grab that for but, you guys. It, it, uh, <laughs> Whoa! Cool. All right, Celtic Frost. Here we go. But um, this uh, it's a great scene. Uh. And then we get while well, Chris is doing that. All right, so then we uh, we start to get the actual revenge plot. And one thing that was interesting was that he went for the black skulls first, when clearly they are the there we go. So it's the F in the frost there. Yeah, so, that would do it. It's a metal band, and uh, I like <laughs> it's it's great. I I thought so. Why did you guys? What do you guys think about him going for the black skulls first? The 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 devil bikers. Like it seems like they would be the harder enemy and they would be the big boss, but I guess emotionally he's got more stake in killing the cultists. I think that's why. Yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, because when eventually he gets to the cultists, that's all. That's that's like really the moment of catharsis. Yeah. And so what we get between, you know, what we get between okay, it's time for revenge, and okay, here's the moment for actual emotional catharsis. Like they're 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 the folks you kill to make an exciting movie. Um, yeah. So you know it was, and that was the most like wildly, um, you know, wildly shot. That was almost the purest action, because it was like close up fighting in a house, and um, there was like you know, some, uh, he was doing some yeah. crazy axe moves too. Like he had some some skills with the axe. Yeah, when he's fighting the when he's fighting the um, the real big like just behemoth looking dude in in the leather in front of the burning car oh that's a great one yeah yeah and so that's what like that's the kind of thing you put on uh you know that's the kind of thing you put on the 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 three minute reel you send to the Cannes film festival (laughs) um (laughs) you know it was it was shot with quick cuts because obviously like nick cage probably didn't spend like six months training like keanu reeves for like long action shots or anything but it was still pretty well shot it was really wild uh, and actually, the 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 added benefit of fighting the the biker gang first is it allows him access to a Scarface amount of cocaine, <laughs> and you know, and a pinky's worth of uh, high powered LSD, which makes him fucking his face melt. And a cool vest. <laughs> and yeah, cool and vest. he gets a pretty cool vest out of it too. I also think it's a good strategy move because now. You know, he doesn't have it, to worry about them. Yeah, they're you know? not gonna. Cu- the, the The guy can't call them for help at some point or something like that. He yeah, he he, he kills the pawns there. first. The pawns are off the board. Yeah. And also, uh, we didn't talk. Well, I don't know how. how I know what you want to talk about, Chris. Knife Dick. Knife Dick. Yeah. Wow. What? Oh yeah. Oh, what was knife that? Dick. I, I, saw- I missed that the first time I watched the movie. Still don't understand what that. I mean, they showed a guy dead bent over with blood all over his butt i'm like i guess this is that guy's mo is the knife dick people which is wow i mean it makes them real evil yeah for they, sure yeah i i think i don't think i picked that up when i watched it the first time but this time i'm like okay 
I'm pretty sure there is like a knife dick situation <laughs> happening. Um, I don't want to watch it a third time to confirm this. Yeah. I think two watches of this over a three-year period is plenty. Um, but at some point in the future, like I'm going to put a post-it note up on my desk that just says knife dick. knife dick. And yeah, and a few You're years from like, now, I'm going to confirm it. Is that your password, knife dick, honey? <laughs> It's like no, do not do not Google knife dick. Do not enter this password. This is just a me project for my mid forties. Don't look for knife dick. Yeah, and here's the question though, you. because I feel like we never really is that his dick or is that something on his costume? You know, because yeah. I think that's really where we get to the like, is are these people are these humans? You know, or are the humans in crazy co crazy costumes or are they something else? Also, for such an overweight man. Uh, really good blood flow, keeping it up, just great control. Well, if it's a costume, it's not a, you know. Yeah, that's true. It could just be an attachment on the front of his pants. I have no. So clue. I, I, I think you know all all credit due to the costume designer because oh my god, they're so good. Like they they, they were otherworldly enough, but also made of stuff you can get at Home Depot, <laughs> and so the fact that we walk this line puts us into this delightful what if territory that we're in right now um they very well could be humans under there that took a bunch of um took a bunch of bad drugs and said you know what we are gonna we are gonna get some leather and we are gonna get some nuts and bolts and a knife and a cod piece and we're just gonna sort our whole aesthetic out <laughs> or it could be like you know or it could be a man absolutely despondent with grief um you know, projecting his monsters onto bikers wearing normal biker stuff, or he could have descended into a fantasy land, or he could have died when they put barbed wire in his mouth when they killed Mandy originally. Like, all of these things are on the table, I think. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of cool. And all of that is because of the costuming, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, like, it could be that part of the backstory we don't know is untreated schizophrenia. Absolutely. It's <laughs> I think everything's there. Uh, so he kills then, these guys. He gets in a crazy axe fight with that guy. Then he uh, he goes after the um, uh, cultists, and that's when it's sort of it's interesting because like they don't really put up that much of a fight. Well, What's before up? the cultists, yeah. there's that huge Tiger King reference where he walks. Oh into my the, gosh! The lab. Yeah, you're right. He walks into this the lab with a tiger shirt on, and there's a tiger in a cage. It's like, oh my god! It's like they knew he was gonna play the Tiger King one day. Yeah. Yeah, that was him. That was him calling a shot like Babe Ruth. He's like, the the talks were already underway. He's like, hey, put a tiger in the scene just to kind of foreshadow my career. Yeah, I feel like that scene with the that super weird scene with the chemist, not necessary at all. Um, True. He could have literally found a post-it note that said, you know, they're north. <laughs> yeah, they're north. Or as a reminder, cash check from Jeremiah Sands who lives in the church in the ravine. Like, but we had this weird moment with, you know, another, uh, you know, another really interesting, you know, character actor, Richard Brake, who plays the chemist. And it's just this weird moment of like, strange, like, dialogue between a man covered in blood and a chemist with a, a, a big cat in a cage. Here's a little uh, a little trivia thing about that. Uh, in early drafts of the script, the uh, Lizzie was a uh, lizard, 
And then the actor said that when he arrived on the set, the director said, oh, by the way, Lizzie's a tiger now. Hey, I could. That's what happens when you're just a working character actor. You know, you sign a contract expecting a lizard. They give you a tiger. You say, you know what? I want my $50,000. What was that other uh, trivia? You told me something else. Oh, yeah. Uh, So Richard Brake was one of the actors who played the Night King in Game of Thrones. Not not near the end when he was more prominent, but some of the earlier uh, stuff with him. What's interesting about that scene? Sorry. He's got such an, he's one of those actors with like super interesting, unique, like facial features and bone structure. Like whenever you see someone that, you know, is, that plays a lot of roles under like pros, like prostheses and makeup and you look at their face, they're like, oh yeah, they, they got a cool looking face. (laughs) Uh, And Richard Brake is one of those cool looking face character actors. Yes. Um. And I, you know, I think that was probably the maybe the weakest scene in the movie for me, but if it you, still was if you interesting. And it, like, it like Lord of the Rings, what? like if you think about Lord of the Rings, that was like he just killed Orukai and he went to go talk to Saruman, you know. No, All but right. Saruman's I evil. Got, I got nothing. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I, Meg, I totally agree with you. Yeah. I, I think it was. I mean, it was the only scene that was wholly unnecessary. Yeah, uh, I think it was weird for sake of weird. It, it also told a really interesting color story, though. Like it was all, you know, white and clean and light gray and like lit kind of, you know, like a late like late evening. Um, so, it, it, you know, I think from a you know from a cinematography perspective, it was interesting, but that's not a reason to put a five minute Richard Brake plus Tiger scene in a movie. Yeah. And I mean, again, again, this, the fact that we're complaining about something, which was interesting, it certainly was memorable, shows that we did really like this movie. And I thought it was nice too. I think this was one of the scenes where, you know, you think that he's going to be against Red because he's working for the cultist, but he just looks at him. He's like, you know, I think this is one where they're like, he's like, you know, they took so much from you. And so he's like, I will help you, you know? He doesn't actually say anything. Nick Cage does has no lines in that scene. It's all him psychically knowing what he wants to say. I'm serious. Yeah. Nick Cage has no lines. Yeah, yeah, I think so. He just he's just like, you're right. I should let the tiger go, and he lets him go. But Nick Cage never said anything, and he's like, ah, the family north. Anyway, we should probably move on to when he starts slaughtering. Yeah. So he we (laughs) we get to the we get to the cultists, and uh, he we get to uh, the scene that I remembered most from my first. Uh, the, the, what stood out to me the first watching, which is the chainsaw versus really big chainsaw, which I yeah. wish we had a clip of, but yeah. I don't think we do. Chainsaw v chainsaw fight, holy shit! It's <laughs> after <laughs> when you see, you know, a you know a a a blood soaked Nick Cage fighting a giant leather man with a heavy metal axe you think well this is going to be the melee fight scene of the movie (laughs) and then 20 minutes later you have a chainsaw measuring contest in the middle of the woods and that's really that's the last big fight you know and it feels like the last big fight even though it's between red and a character that has no lines in the movie or one line in a movie He's literally just a guy in a tank top with a six foot long chainsaw. And that's enough. He, you know, that fight scene's the personification of like, this is the last physical hurdle. You know, everything past this is going to be, you know, this descent into emotional catharsis. 
But before we get there, chainsaw fight. That man was lit- is literally like a, a stuntman from Belgium. That's like, you know, that he's hired and, and like that's his scene. He probably brought his own chainsaw. Yeah, he probably... Ready to go. <laughs> that chainsaw, I didn't even know they made him that big. I, mm-hmm. I wonder if it was custom just for this movie. Who knows? Yeah, maybe that guy with the 500 acres of forest was like, you're using my axe. That is good. But I have a chainsaw in the barn if you would like the chainsaw. And they're like, all right, you can, you can put the chainsaw in. <laughs> they, they look in the thing. They're like, oh, oh, we got to add a chainsaw fight. <laughs> yeah, let's, <laughs> let's, let's send this script back, have them punch it up in the, in the, the boardroom, and then we'll shoot the chainsaw. It's like, no, you don't understand. This thing is six feet long. It's, it's taller than me. Chainsaw fight. <laughs> Must be very hard for them to have w- wielded that, you know? It was the, it's heavy. Yeah. Heavy, weirdly weighted. It's like a two yeah. like It Seems like it'd be hard to fight with, but. I, I mean, what's kind of cool is, you know, the fact that Red's a logger and the first time we see him, he's using a chainsaw and the last fight of the movie, he's using a chainsaw Back to is kind of cool. Um, it's we see the two sides of him, you know, a, a man with a violent past that is that has made enough peace that he can, you know, clear cut old growth trees, and then at the very end, you know, he he fully descends into madness and revenge, and he uses that same tool again for these <laughs> these darker, far darker purposes. Yeah. Also, like we- one of the most direct links to Ghost Rider is at this exact moment when he wields a chain to kill the guy, just like Ghost Rider when he flings it at the guy, mm-hmm. pulls him in. It was like, man, you could cut that scene right into one of the Ghost Rider movies. And Chris will absolutely be doing that. And I that, will be I'm doing sure. that, yes. I will be <laughs> when we make the um, ultimate supercut movie of all the movies combined, that is going to be there. <laughs> The uh, so he 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 fights a couple people. He he uh, well, not really fights. He just kills them. The sort of the like number two dude. He he killed him with the spiky end of the axe and a fairly gruesome mouth stabbing scene. Uh, and then he lets the younger girl who's part of the cult go, which is you know a nice touch. Yeah, uh, not just murdering everybody. Mm-hmm. Um. And he beheads the older woman um, who I think at this point we've established, like she was, you know, clearly the one, one of the people who was torturing Mandy. So I think we're sort of set up to be like, okay, she's part of the evil thing. Whereas the younger woman is sort of treated as like a captive, I would say, as sort of with the Russian roulette scene, like it's clear that like she's being victimized. Yeah. Um, And uh, then we, Oh, I forgot one thing about the chainsaw thing scene, which I didn't remember for the last time, is he sets the guy on fire. And maybe this is the other one, where he sets the guy on fire, he beheads the guy, sets him on fire, and then lights his cigarette with his flaming Oh, head. that was the guy by the car. That was the guy, oh, by, yeah, that was the guy by the car. That was the big leather dude by the car, yeah. What you can't move. forget to note, note that, because that's uh, important. And we get that nice, like, tight close-up of his face, you know, wide-eyed, cigarette smoke. It's like, oh, my God. It, it's those moments, those precise little moments where a satisfied audience says, thank you, Nick Cage. Yeah. You and only you could sell that. <laughs> and the, this movie had a lot of dilated uh, contact lenses. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every the Nick Cage crazy eyes, but with dilated now, it's like holy shit, next level. Like of the of the six million dollar budget, 
like $3 million went to Nick Cage. Everybody else got paid scale. And then like $2.9 million into dilated content. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, just nothing They went through so many. <laughs> um, we uh, end, or we finally end his revenge and he, he confronts Jeremiah Sand. He squishes his head uh, in a particularly gross scene. Any, any thoughts on that final uh, revenge scene in the chapel? It was very unsettling because of the throbbing, uh, like the way the, the camera went in and out constantly. That was very weird for me. Yeah, that, yeah, it was like fading in and out. And so, yeah. um, you know, I like the, it's all, you know, it's all, you know, director of photography doing cool stuff. And the director's like, yeah, just be weird here. Um I think the, I mean, the, 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 the kind of head exploding scene or the head crush scene. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it did a couple of things. One, it was super gross and I didn't expect it. Um, that's the thing. Practical effects like that have all, and maybe cause I'm, you know, I was born in the eighties and I'm a child of like Hellraiser and puppet master and movies where it's just like buckets and buckets of blood and guts but like practical effects always hit me harder than anything computer generated when it comes to like gore and horror. And so, um, yeah, like seeing kind of that, that the head get crushed was very gross. And also like, that's not a thing a human can do, <laughs> you know? So that for me, that, that kind of symbolized this last moment where he has now just become a revenant. You know, he is, he is cast off his human form he is now just revenge that walks the earth. Like, cause human beings can't, especially like 52 year old human beings can't just like crush a skull. Like you, pecs don't work that way, but he is no longer human. That for me, that's what that little scene represented. And, and then that was it. Like his, his journey is now over. He has done this thing. So, yeah. And I think talking, we talked a little bit about the, the photography for it, but I think one thing we haven't brought up at all is the soundtrack for this. Um, yeah. I just, the, so the, the score was written by a guy named Johan Johansson, who actually died right before Mandy came out. So this movie is dedicated to him. Um, he also did the soundtrack for Arrival um, and a few other things. Uh, but I just think the music in this is just incredible. Like the, the, the soundtrack is very much, the sort of synth and 80s it's it feels like a similar to like thor ragnarok to me if it was you know incredibly dark <laughs> yeah it kind of the yeah. i heard somewhere I, I forget who um it was like a director like i was like watching some interview with like a director that was talking about advice that some other director gave him or her but it was a it was about making kind of a period piece or making something that's that's anchored in a specific year is you shouldn't kind of bash the audience over the head with the year. Like it shouldn't like we, you know, there shouldn't have been like a reelect, re, you know, reelect Ronald Reagan poster, like hanging in the middle of the woods or something like that. Like it, 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 it needs to be a little more subtle. And I think between like the, you know, the, the weird goblin Mac and cheese commercial on like the big, like the big tube television plus the music like set it really set it into the 80s in like this perfect kind of way without it being too too overt so i thought the music did a ton of heavy lifting and it was all i totally agree with you it was totally awesome 
Yeah. So what's then, the, oh, sorry. No, uh, yeah, I was just going to take us to our, our very final scene, but Chris, did you have something before we go there? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, yeah, we have uh, it in the, we have the, in the, the media. We can play it. The media. Oh, not the forging scene. We saw the forging scene. I mean, we could watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> this is the very last scene in the film, which I'm dressed as. So he's driving away after killing the coldest. That's that's the smile. That's uh, if I could do it all over again, that would be my business card. <laughs> Jeez, Louise. Yeah. So so I I, I guess my question. So I have a kind of a, a pretty clear interpretation of what that that final scene is. But what what but you know, Megan, Chris, what do you think that scene is? <laughs> Like, what does that scene mean to you? <laughs> I think it's just him, you know, have, have going off into the sunset and uh, having accomplished his mission and feeling like her, you know, her spirit is there with him, approving of what he did. And, you know, he's, I, I mean, I'm sure there's an interpretation for, there's many different interpretations for it. So I'm curious what you guys think. I, but think, I think it's relatively straightforward for me. I think at that moment, he leaves the real world and enters a different realm where Fair. she's still alive because they pan up and they show like a crazy fantasy landscape with multiple planets in the sky. And so I think at that moment he gives up on reality and he's like, I am just going to go in a world where Mandy's not dead and all this would meant something. And you know what I mean? Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. I think my, my take is kind of right there, right there in between yours. It's this mix of like the world is still real, but he is now choosing to leave it behind. Like he, he took a, his reason for living is gone. You know, his friend Carruthers says that him going to take these folks on is a death sentence. And in, in actuality, Carruthers was probably right. Like we don't see Red Miller die, but we see Red Miller leave this real, like the real world is there and he is choosing to leave it. Um, I mean, this, you know, that last scene is you know, like so many other little elements in the movie, just this like love story to that 80s culture of like, you know, heavy metal and comic books and, you know, draw drawing like fantasy landscapes in your notebook and, you know, uh, we wearing, wearing metal t-shirts. Like it's, it's a love letter to that exact kind of thing. And, uh, you know, this movie, it's all, I, I, re, I see the whole movie within the context of that, that, that quote at the very beginning, you know? Yeah. This movie and Disney's Onward are pretty much the same story. Just same aesthetic. <laughs> Slight, <laughs> slightly different music. Just, yeah, the vans. Okay. <laughs> I, I, right. I, Chris and I turned off Onward in the middle, so I... Uh, <laughs> we didn't make it. We couldn't make it. Wow. I, I'm that's, curious, that's before we... What'd you say? That's tough. It's it's well it's just it uh it wasn't it wasn't very good. I know this is not what other people have said, but I did not think it was a, an interesting movie. Controversial statements. Sorry guys. Uh, hey, I'm not mad at it. I, if, I uh... if you don't want to listen to this podcast anymore, then <laughs> I understand. Uh, just a question before we go on to uh, the next section of this. Um, so as uh, someone who has seen it before. John, what did you, how did it hold up versus how you remember it? I know it obviously wasn't very long ago, but did you like it more or less or? So uh, because I watched it 
you know, to, to reacquaint myself so I could talk to the both of you about it, I, I watched with a bit more of a critical eye. Um, but it definitely didn't feel like homework, that's for sure. Uh, I, I think I paid, um, I paid a lot more attention to how the plot had a very few moving parts and all held together. Uh, I think I respected the, I respected the dialogue a lot more. Like I really paid more attention to the exchanges between like everything the cultists said that diet because you know like the delivery like jeremiah sands delivery is all over the place and all the other cultists are almost cartoons at times but like i really listened to their dialogue this time and it was good like it was a good script mm -hmm. so that's what i the, the second time around it was a you know i i i saw a good script and i saw really interesting cinematography and practical effects and i think i was so I was just watching the spectacle of it all the first time. This time I like I knew what was coming, so I was able to focus on all the individual pieces of food on the plate, and I found them all delicious. <laughs> um, I will say that for for my part, I I think I enjoyed it even more this time. I I uh, was I remembered it different. I remembered it being more dark and disturbing and less enjoyable, but I I I just I thought the love story in the beginning was more you know it really it really hit me harder now i just i just i don't know i found it very moving i i, I don't know i liked it more this time even though i did enjoy it the first time and uh that's my thought on that chris yes take us to the trivia section please oh we're going to trivia i thought we were going to trivia but you know what happened uh i forgot to hit oh boy oh i'm messing up big time sorry guys Let's All right. So imagine, it. imagine if you will, uh, the word trivia coming up onto the screen and spinning around with some, <laughs> some uh... trivia, 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 trivia. Remember, we had the same problem last time too. It was like trivia button. The trivia, trivia button was. Button. All right. Well, while you're doing that, I'm gonna just go ahead and tell you guys some trivia that I found out about this movie. Um, so when when he was filming this movie he had nick cage recently had a sudden end to his 14-year marriage to a woman named alice kim trivia, trivia. <laughs> <laughs> thank you um so he, he got divorced very suddenly and all of his feelings went into this performance so he was acting from a place of loss already hmm. um let's see other trivia that uh I haven't already mentioned that might be uh one of the one of the best uh oh yes here's a good one nicholas cage had a screaming coach for this movie <laughs> which okay is wild to me because who if anyone doesn't need a screaming coach you know I, I, my hope is that the the screaming coach was just trying to protect his instrument you know like those screams were Nick Cage being Nick Cage, but hopefully this person was just putting guardrails on it to not blow out his vocal cords or anything. Yeah, it's yeah. probably more to do with uh, like, yeah, like the protecting your actual voice kind of coach versus because he's not a singer, right? Uh, he, no, I don't think like, so. I wonder if he's had voice lessons in his life or something like that. Um, another another thing I forgot to mention is this movie is produced by Elijah Wood. 
If you need sure. another reason to like indie darling Elijah Wood. <laughs> um, and then the last one, uh, how many people do you think were killed in this movie without counting? Just well, a heads head, a high level. I'm going to say nine. Yeah, I would say nine. It's 10. You guys are pretty close. All right, all right cool. Um, all right, let's go on to uh, the most important section of this where we rank the movie. So Chris will hit a button and we will go to the... Oh, we will go to the rank the king. See, that one worked. Nice. That's nice. Cool, nice huh? Listening. All right. And hopefully, uh, yeah, right. it worked flawlessly, everyone. <laughs> Except for says uh, Nicholas Cage from our last P and I, <laughs> our last misspelling of Nicholas Cage. Um, so the way this works is that we rank uh, the movie in a couple different categories out of ten. Uh, the magical spreadsheet sums up our points and ranks it against the five other movies that we've already uh, we already ranked. Our top movie so far, uh, John, for your information, is Face Off. So. I do think this was a very favorable. We everyone really liked this movie. I'd be curious if it beats Face Off. We'll see. I, I, so I, I, I'm I'm trying to think of how I want to approach it because there's like how I would rank any other movie versus how I would rank Nick Cage movies. You yeah. know, like Face Off is for me like the just the the absolute like. Face Off is the most Nick Cage, Nick Cage movie yeah. in my mind, which that makes sense to me. Uh, but this is very Nick Cagey as well. So well, yeah, we'll see, we'll see where we end up. So the first the first category is cast, and so that's sort of as a whole, how strong was the cast? Not not specifically their acting. That this one's a little tricky. Sort of like how much you were just like, oh, this guy's in this movie. This rules, you know. Like when you how, walk how into a movie. A Nick Cage movie, and you look around the cast, you're like, man, this is a ca- a really solid cast of great actors, like people you know. Versus like it's Nick Cage, and then like you know a bunch of people you have no, no clue who they are. So, but like, this I, one I, is tricky though because I feel like this is a Nick Cage and a bunch of people I don't know who they are. But it's a I actually cast, really so. liked how well they were cast. So right, we'll leave it up to you to decide what, out of ten what you would rate this. We'll start. We'll start with with you, John. So. um yeah, and I don't want to talk through all of these as much as I'm going to talk about cast, because I think cast is the one that I, I kind of need to explain myself for. Yes. Um, Nick Cage is Red Miller. Bill Duke is Carruthers. Linus Roach as the cult leader. I think all three of those casting choices were nearly perfect. Um, you know, I think for, uh, yeah, Andrea Riseborough played Mandy Bloom. Uh, and then everybody else, you know, I mean, aside from Richard Brake, everybody else you probably haven't heard of, but I think everyone was like perfectly cast to, to do what they did. So given all of that, I'd be hard pressed to give it anything less than a nine. Nice. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, Brendan on the chat agreeing either Andrea Riseborough, it says Andrea Riseborough is a God tier actor. <laughs> she's in a ton of stuff and she's good in everything okay i uh i think what chris did you just uh give a bunch of subscriptions to people at the chat yeah i just i just made it rain subscriptions for people because thank you for watching 
That's awesome. Uh, now All you right, can so, use the emo of the donut. <laughs> Um, Chris, what, uh, what would you rank this? Oh, all right. So I'm not going to go as high as a nine. I usually, how I play this is, do I walk in there and I'm like, boom, actor I know, boom, actor I know. It's not always the best way to, like, sometimes if all the acting's terrible and the casting decisions are wrong, I'm like, oh, this is terrible, right? Uh, but like, you think like great ensemble casts in a, uh, in a, uh, Nick Cage movie. It's like, uh. I don't know. The first one's coming to mind is probably not the best one is Con Air because it's like you got you got Stevie Semi, you got uh you know a lot of like you know big time actors there. I'm not gonna like lowball this one because they're not all big actors. I agree with you. Everybody was a really great choice, so I'm gonna give it a seven. I'm also gonna give it a seven. That was pretty much my logic too. I think everyone's on. all right. Acting how how good? Not specifically Nick Cage, but just in general, how good was the acting in this movie? So I, I, I feel like this is a tough script to act brilliantly in if you're not the lead. Like every, everyone here is just related to the lead and they're to serve the lead, except for the cult leader. But the thing is, yeah, I mean, I think the cult leader acted well. I felt better about his acting. Uh, I'm going to say eight, mm, seven, eight. seven. Seven. But a solid seven. Solid seven. <laughs> I'm right there with you on the seven, because uh, yeah, there was there wasn't a lot of meat for everyone to really you know get into, but what they did have, they did good. Yeah, I'll stick with the seven. It feels right to wow, me. Wow, the first time ever we're all in agreement on one category. That's cool. Um, oh, all right, this fun. next category is how fun is this movie? I, I will say Face Off was a perfect 10 for me, for example, because I could not think of any other anything more fun than watching Face Off. I think, you know, leaving Las Vegas was probably a zero because it was incredibly unpleasant. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, You don't that's- show up for leaving Las Vegas to have a good time. No. Um, for me, this is my Face Off. Uh, I, I'll put it to you this way. I probably had as much fun watching... Mandy as I did watching Face Off, but Face but Mandy did not have a completely unnecessary boat chase in it. So uh, I'm going to give this one a solid 10 for packing in tremendous fun into a nice tidy two hours. Um, I got to watch it in freaking Salem with like my best friend, you know, it was, yeah. And I got to watch it again under a heated blanket, like <laughs> during Halloween season. So yeah. Mandy is good, good 10 for up the me. ranks. I, this is, this is a wow. This is a high-scoring film. I'm not disagreeing with John here. I, it was really fun when that second act turn comes around, and he starts forging his own axe. <laughs> but I, I will say, just because, like the first, I'm gonna give it an eight. It was super fun, but like, I, I feel like when when you think of Face Off, the whole movie's just fun and stupid. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm, yeah, I'm going to go with it on this one. Yeah. I uh, I promise I don't always just say what Chris says. I was thinking of doing an eight too. Um, <laughs> and I, I just, I do want to point out, I just think that Chris and I had a lot of build up to this movie. You know, we knew that it was coming. I knew that like Chris is not big on very disturbing movies. And, uh, you know, we were talking about, all right, we're not going to watch this one at night. Like we watched this one at like 830 this morning. Yeah. Um, specifically for the purpose of like not fucking up Chris's sleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's just nice i i'm happy that after all this buildup of me, me being worried about how well it would go over with chris that you're here in the costume from the guy with the movie saying it was really fun <laughs> so, 
Yeah, um, I, next I was is, pleasantly okay, surprised. Anyway, yes. What did you say, Chris? I, I was pleasantly you. surprised. Good. Um, next one, technical. This is sort of your, uh, like anything you'd get a technical Oscar for. So costuming, uh, special effects, you know, all that. I mean, the, the practical effects uh, gave me the same kind of like wonder I felt watching horror as a teenager. I thought the practical effects were great. I thought, I keep talking about the costuming, um, the music. Uh, I mean, I'm going to take a full point off for the fact that that's not how you make an axe. Uh, so it would have, uh, so nine minus one is an eight. Eight. Uh I really enjoyed all the cinematography. Uh, not that I'm a connoisseur or know much about it, but I just really enjoyed how like how the film looked. And um, I mean, like, yeah, there was a lot of great practical effects. Um, and I, I, but I wouldn't say I'm like, oh, you know, this is as good as, as some of the other movies he's done. But I would say uh, just on the budget they had, I would probably put an A too. Um. I know this is gonna be crazy, but I'm gonna give this a ten. As nice, wow. I just I feel like the app, the combination of the lighting and the the way that it's shot and the music, it just it really stuck with me in terms of a mood, and I just thought it was so effective for especially given the budget. So this film is dangerously close to being number one in unseating Face Off. I think it's gonna. I think it might unseat Face Off. Wow, um, this is incredible! I did not expect that out of this. Did film. not see that coming. So uh, overall, this Jesus. is exactly what it sounds like. Out of ten, what overall is your rating for this movie? Uh, I mean, I like. I'm normally a pretty tough grader, but uh, <laughs> you know, I look at this and I like. This is a movie that's greater than the sum of its parts. It, it was disturbing at times. The effects were super interesting. Um, I oh God, I can't call it ten overall, not, not as a guest. I, you know, it's it's like I'm like walking into someone else's house and no, like you, stomping you around can. with. You can say whatever you want if that's your real feeling. This movie's a ten. I loved it. Wow, I loved I loved it, and I loved it more the second time. I thought it was great. I want to watch it again at some point. Damn. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna say it's a solid. It's a solid seven for me. It's not, it's not an eight. I, I'm bordering on eight, but it's. Uh, I think, I think there's other strong. If I'm comparing it to the all the movies I've seen in the cages so far, I can't, I can't throw it up there with the other the other ones. Just you know, just based on. But also, I need to kind of bring down your your guys because you're in front of. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm going nuts. I saw overall, I lost my mind. Uh, no, no, <laughs> it's good. It's good, Meg. Yes, um, I'm gonna give it an eight. I enjoyed it uh, quite a bit. You know, it's not my favorite movie of all time, but I think it's thoroughly good. Um, so this last one in bonus, you can add or take away a single bonus point. And looking at some previous scores, we have a couple movies that are within one point of each other. So this really does matter. Um, so like, for example, you could, I've taken away a bonus point in the past for a bad hairpiece, or you can mm. add a bonus point for uh, some particularly scene you like, or take away a bonus point for improper uh, axe manufacturing technique, so. Okay, so I, I already dinged him in technical for the axe. Um, I mean, I stand by my 10 overall, but when you're looking at something that you gave a 10 to, 
I'm looking at it to say, okay, well, what, what didn't I like about a movie that's a 10? Um, the scene with the chemist. I'm taking away one point because I don't think it was necessary. I think it dragged. It was the worst scene in the whole movie. Um, and we didn't need it. So I would like to take away one point from this otherwise top-notch experience. All right, yeah, one point. Sorry, I'm responding to somebody in the chat uh, asking, if have we done Bad Lieutenant yet? And no, not yet, but that is coming up. Uh, that's going to be a great episode. That's, that was, that's a very frequently re requested one. Yeah. Uh, so we got negative one for, uh, for John for the bonus, Chris. All right. Anything you want to add or take away? Uh, one point for Knife Dick. Nice. Nice. Okay. There it I'm is. I'm going to add a point for the unnecessary tiger. I thought it was cool. The tiger scene was great. <laughs> Love the tiger. I just want to, before we go to the score, I just want to point out that I have been keeping track of the guests' top rated movies. So the guests that we've had who gave their movie the highest score, um, I believe this previously was tied between Dan Chapman for Facebook, Facebook, <laughs> Face Off, and uh, Brendan Buzard for Wild at Heart, who both gave. 41 total points to their movie. You have hit 44, making you our most enthusiastic guest. He's yet. the most enthusiastic <laughs> guest. I'll put some dubs. Yeah. I, li I like what I like. I like what I like. Oh, I need to have uh, some more some more things on my my keyboard for celebration. <laughs> um. So uh, let's let's see where this ranks I'm against uh, Face Off and our other movies. Here we go. Oh, Whoa. it's it's hidden. It's Whoa. hidden. Mandy took the first place spot. What's behind uh, uh, me is the Wicker Man movie. Oh yeah, we should we should change the layout so we can see number Just six now. Shrink that, we... that font a little or something. But wow, the Wicker Man is down uh, deservedly in the last place, and Mandy and Face Off. So at the top. I'll... I'll read these if someone's just listening on the podcast. Mandy is our number one, Face Off our number two, Wild at Heart number three, Leaving Las Vegas number four, National Treasure five, and The Wicker Man is six. You know, wow. I'm not mad at this. I'm surprised. Really, this is a big turn for you, Chris. I'm happy it went this way. Yeah. So it, what what I what I think is super cool is that Face Off is it's either Face Off or Con Air that's really like the most like Nick Cage, like action hero, Nick Cage movie. So I'm glad Face Off is up there, but Mandy represents what Nick Cage is capable of right now. Yes. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it's nice to see like peak Cage and crafty veteran Cage, you know, both in these top spots. It's I nice think... to see he's getting better with time, like a fine yeah, line. I would love to see instead of a. I think I'm gonna make this instead of a, just a ranked list, uh, a more like a, a scale where you see where they're clustered point wise. Like there's probably a they're probably pretty close, Mandy and Face Off and Wild at Heart point wise. But you know we have them ranked. They might be off by like a few points. But it'd be yeah. interesting to see like which ones are real stinkers versus which ones. I are, agree. You know what I mean, like Wicker um, Man, I think had 60 points versus 122 on Mandy. So. So we uh, we have an, an, the next section. Ah, uh, yes. Chris's, Chris's the cage baby. gauge. Okay, the so cage the, gauge. the cage Ooh. gauge is a quad like a, a quadrant graph that just maps that that quintessential trademark cage craziness <laughs> versus his acting ability in this movie. So just cage, you know, what I'm talking about that like that cage craziness, uh, and and then you know, so in the, out of ten, what would you give him for his his cage craziness level in this film? 
Oh, man, I, I hate to be like the enthusiastic guest, but like he drank a bottle of vodka in a bathroom while screaming and then forged an axe and then spent the rest of the time on drugs. <laughs> Ten. I mean, I mean, you're not you're not wrong. He it, <laughs> that is like really crazy. I, I I I hesitate to give it a 10 just because I like to differentiate between acting as the role requires and then that that extra cage crazy that he throws on things. And like to me, a scene where he's screaming and he's like is in pain and he's like, oh, my God, my wife died is less of the cage craziness versus the the scene where he's um oh, what there's a moment where it's it's. I, I some of his screens where he's like, hey, hey, he does like that thing at the end. Those are a little cage crazy. Mm-hmm. So I'm not gonna give it top cage. It is a crazy movie, but like the smile at the end when he's doing all the teeth, like that's like what I call cage. Yeah, crazy. Uh, yeah, I gotcha. Like, so I'm gonna give the, it the eight. smile at the end is like him dressed as the priest and face off. Yeah, like that's yeah. I, like I see what you're I see what you're getting at. Yeah. So I'm gonna give it an eight, but it is crazy. I mean, it is up there mm-hmm. in terms of crazy. Yeah, we don't have any of the sort of trademark cage like talking, talking, and then like one word in the sentence is just shouted for no reason. Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say an eight as well because he does spend the first half of the movie relatively subdued, and it does seem like his craziness comes from circumstance and less of like he's just like I've taken this character that should otherwise be normal and have made him insane. Yeah, that's a good. Okay, all right. You know what? Now that within this context. Could I amend mine down to? Yeah, you a can nine. do whatever you want. Yeah, you I think okay. I'll, I'll give it a nine because yeah, I agree. Like I think he played the first half more or less as written, with potentially the exception of mentioning Galactus. Yeah. So yeah, okay, okay, I'm good. But he, does, <laughs> I should explain that more. It's like it's more like where you where Nick Cage takes the script and does something with it that is just purely Cage, and like he's doing it on purpose, and you know he is. Uh, yeah. So the yeah. acting ability in this movie. Where would you rate him out of 10 on acting in this film? So, you know, like I mentioned before, like this script doesn't give, you know, there, there isn't a ton of meat in it for, for anyone really to kind of flex their, their acting chops too, too much. Um, I think, I think he, he did what he did with the words on the page. Um, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go seven here. Seven. All right. You know, I'm, I'm actually going to go higher than you on this one. I think Ooh, he sold right. it. I, he was selling me. I, I, you know, when he was emotional, I, I wasn't like, well, this is like all terrible acting. I thought it was, I thought it was great. He sold yeah, me. no, that's fair. That's very so fair. I, I'm going to give him an eight. How about you, Meg? I'll give him a seven. I'm, you know, same, same, same boat as you guys, I think. So interestingly, um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, this lands us in the quadrant where we usually land with these films, which is on the crazier side and on the better acting side. And uh, and that puts us firmly in the center of this uh, this quadrant here. Uh, now, if we look at it compared to the other ones, that's clustering with a lot of other movies. You got uh, you got Leaving Las Vegas. You, uh, sorry, you got Face Off. You've got um, this is uh, oh god, the one with Elvis. Uh, what's the name of that one? Wild at Heart. Wild at Heart. Uh, and then this is Leaving Las Vegas. So you got those up in this quadrant. In, in the the bad acting, more crazy, we got Wicker Man. Yeah. And yep. the less crazy bad acting, we've got National Treasure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, 
All of those are in the precise correct spots. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's good that we have three people voting because it, it averages it out nicely. It, it, yeah, it, yeah, that's nice. I want to see what? what's going to Go be the first one to show up in the less crazy good acting ca uh, category. We'll see about that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it may not be very many. Um, okay. Uh, we are now going to take a brief detour and hit a Nick Cage fact. Oh, we are, okay. aren't we? Nick Cage facts. <laughs> Nick Cage facts. <laughs> so basically, this is our the section of our podcast where we briefly learn about the man behind the movies. Um, we are so many weird Nick Cage facts out there. Uh, many to go. Um, I'm just going to read a little, a little uh, story from an interview from him um, about him gambling. Uh, so this is what he said. He says, the last time I gambled was 30 years ago. I was in the Bahamas and I walked into a casino and felt like I had my mojo with me, like nothing could go wrong. My game was roulette. I went in with $200. I didn't miss a number so much so that even the lady spinning the wheel said nothing sweeter than a repeater. In 20 minutes, I turned $200 into $20,000. So I went and I found an orphanage in the Bahamas met all the kids and the headmistress and said, this is for you. I put the 20 grand in her hand, walked away and never gambled again, because if I did, it would ruin the power of that moment. Wow. That's just a, I can't who knows if that. this is true. <laughs> I want to believe it. I want to I believe too. it. I want the, you know, I want to believe the world is really like that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm voting with my heart and not my head and saying, yeah. I accept that as canon fact. It's real. <laughs> It's real. All right. So, um, John, where can the people find you on mostly the internet these days? I would imagine. What uh, what what would you like to promote? <laughs> sure. Um, so uh, there is a, a one show on the internet that uh, is near and dear to I think two of the three of us here in this, uh, and that's oh, yeah. Quarantine Action Wrestling. It is a completely fictional wrestling league that feels like like 1990s wwe big characters big promos songs music fake commercials and then all the matches are simulated in a video game and it's every thursday night um uh 8 p.m eastern time 5 p.m pacific on twitch.tv slash 2 mb studios the number 2 mb studios and also on that, uh, on Saturdays at 8 o'clock Eastern time, uh, I'm the uh, game master of a show called Knights of Prospect, which is half um, live play role-playing game and half like comedy improv fantasy show. And uh, that it's serialized. The episodes are about 70 minutes. They're super fun. That's awesome. I just threw I that in the chat out. for everybody's uh, reference. Yeah, check the chat for links to this. Um, so uh, other stuff that we usually promote on here, uh, we have a virtual improv is our short form improv show that yeah, Chris and I and a few other people do every Friday night at 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern. It's on this channel, so twitch.tv slash managers comedy. Uh, we will have another show this week. Um, this is a special thing we're promoting this week only. Uh, so if you are listening to this, live or uh before or on tuesday before wednesday um there's a uh, online film showing for a short film that chris and i and our friend will gianetta made called me you and marlin it's part of the 48 hour film project um we basically there's like an audience award for each individual screening and we 
moved on to the audience award in our screening. So all of the other films that won audience awards are all going to be screening. It'll be, it's a really fun use of an evening for it's 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 i think it's twelve dollars to watch and uh 15 for this one 15 for this one and it's uh it's i think it's 12 films or 15 somewhere around that uh and they're all about the max time limit is eight minutes everyone had a weekend to make it but what this screening is is all the ones that won the best in their in their filming group so it's it's the audience 20 voted 20 it's 20 films Sorry. the audience voted and these are the ones they like the best so if you're looking for something to do on wednesday night this is actually a really fun thing to do i, I i've seen them all because i watched most of the screening groups and there are a lot of really good ones out there so and fun. also if you're friends with us in real life send me a message and we'll have a zoom screening party and we can all yeah. send, send messages <laughs> to each other while we watch um and uh yeah so it's fun uh and our next episode uh which we are oh oh wait hold on chris we always forget to do this you ready we have an email address. Yeah. So if you want, if so, you have any suggestions or you have any questions or anything that we missed during the show or opinions that you want to share or anything like that, send me, send an email to managerscomedy at gmail.com and we can, uh, we can do some mail on the air. Fan mail. <laughs> fan mail or whatever the hell can you want. Imagine? Yeah. Someday Chris will have fan someday, mail. Someday there'll be an email that comes about this, but we'll see. Um, our next show is next Sunday, November 8th. We have our first double episode, which means we have two people because this movie is so big. It couldn't just be one person. The movie is The Rock. We are doing The Rock, the uh, second of the great Nick Cage 90s action trilogy that we are doing on this show. Uh, our guests are Liz Jakowski and Connor Allen, two people we know from Boston. Very excited for this. Welcome to The say? Rock. And right after the death of Sean Connery, so. Yeah, um, that is not, that was a total coincidence. That was on purpose. <laughs> if I was to pick a four-person dream team to talk about the movie The Rock, it would be these exact four people. That's awesome. <laughs> I would pick Sean Connery, Nick Cage. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. And then another Nick Cage. Jerry Brockheimer. <laughs> and then Jerry Brockheimer. <laughs> Um, and, uh, we are also, we're always fundraising for, uh, the downtown women's center, uh, organizations, in Los Angeles that serves uh, a homeless community, um, and, uh, specifically women. It's a great organization. If you feel like throwing a few dollars their way, um, oh my gosh, this the has been a great show. The link is in the credits. Guys. What? Sorry, it's in the credits. Yeah. Link yes, is in the credits. Okay. Downtownwomencenter.org slash donate. Um, this has been a great show guys. We we finally got one under two hours. We're we're working on our timing, but it's just we just we just have so much fun. We just keep talking. It's John, great. you're an awesome guest. Thank you so yes, much. Yes, thank you so show. much. Very there thoughtful. is nothing I would have rather done on a Sunday evening than talk <laughs> with you two about this movie. Thank you both so much for having me. Yes. Uh, all right, we'll everybody. See you all next week. Have a good Bye. one. Unlocking the Cage is produced by The Manager Special. Music by Will Janetta. Check out our other shows, as well as sketches, animation, and short films at managerscomedy.com.